Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, it's crunch time. Who would want to be in publishing? Between an already stressed $14 billion ad market, a global pandemic which is now tanking the ad market, a looming ominous end to the online cookie economy and tighter privacy regulation, both of which are likely to further consolidate the advertising dominance of Google and Facebook, it all seems to be getting uglier for publishers trying to turn a dime from professional content creation. We're also seeing a high-stakes battle royale play out as we speak between big tech and not-so-big media with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. There is another layer of complexity to come yet. But to contest this terribly bleak scenario are some media executives charged with firing up the publishing industry's new collaborative counter-strike called the Premium Content Alliance. With us today to hear why there remains hope for journalism and professionally created premium content is Jared Roberts, Seven West Media's Chief Digital Officer and Chair of Think Premium Digital, one of the three arms in the Premium Content Alliance. We've also got Chris Jans, Chief Digital and Publishing Officer at Nine, and he's Chair of Think News Brands, the second arm in the trio. And Kim Two Hats Portrait, CEO of the Premium Content Alliance itself and the CEO of Think TV, which is the final part of the new initiative. Now, that took a bit, but we got there. So welcome to you all. We'll get to the why and the what of the Premium Content Alliance shortly. But Kim Portrait, is this scenario we just painted too bleak? And why is this new alliance going to make a difference? Google and Facebook keep winning, don't they? Well, it's true they are very strong competitors and it's true that the situation you described is is a bleak one. However, you've known me for a long time, Paul, and I'm an optimist. So I am absolutely convinced that there is an opportunity for good local Australian professionally produced content to connect with Australian audiences think this organisation is about local Australian media owners working together uh, in both a metaphorical and a literal sense for the common good. All of the shareholders make uh, content that Australians consume. It's professionally produced from news, entertainment and Aussies love it. You know, I think one of the things we're really passionate about is protecting something that our community do love and that was the fundamental reason for the for the organization being formed and for the shareholders um, putting their hats in the ring to come together and do something to kind of reverse the bleak situation that you opened with well Australians do love it Kim and there's no question about that you see that in the numbers and and I think we'll talk about some of those in a sec but Australians love it but the market seems to be less convinced by it as in the advertisers well, I don't think that's true. I think we've seen and have and continue to get great support from Australian marketers. We are all in businesses that are placing advertising inside great content from Australian marketers. What the organisation wants is a little bit more of that, which I don't think is unreasonable given the investment that they make into the community. There's not one Australian marketer who doesn't catch the news or watch a program or 
cruiser website that belonged to one of the shareholders. So I, I would challenge that. I think the question isn't about whether they support us or understand the value. I think the question for us, and that's why we've come together, is to demonstrate why our environments are effective advertising environments so that they get a return on investment. Jared Roberts, too bleak. What's your thoughts on that on that uh, that setup? Well, I think you know to to answer the point that you made before. Um, you know, Facebook and Google. You know, do they keep winning? Look, I guess, as we said, in some senses they do. But the question is, should they be? And I think, again, to Kim's point, that's a question that a lot of marketers are asking themselves at the moment. I think that you know a lot of marketers do understand that in large part. You know, their performance is actually based uh, on the investment that we make into local Australian content that's created for other Australians. Um, and again, that is why we've come together um, to help people further understand that differentiation and to understand, you know, the effectiveness that that delivers. In the end, we're about business results and we need to go to the effort of, of proving to marketers and advertisers that we can deliver that. So are things bleak at the moment? Sure. You know, it's been a tough period, uh, not just for us, but for a lot of industries. But the reality is that, again, we can differentiate ourselves um, from our competitors and particularly the duopoly that you talked about because we've got premium content that's provided in context that delivers credibility and trust and business outcomes. Um, so that's why we'll come out of it. Chris Jans, you're hopeful as well, like your colleagues, optimistic, I should say. Shock horror, I am. And, and you know, you look at our audiences, they've never been stronger. If you look at news brands in particular, we reach 96% of the Australian population every month. Um, news websites are read by nine out of 10 people. Printed newspapers reach two thirds of the population. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald alone reaches 11 million Australians every month, and that's in an environment that's trusted and credible. And, you know, we have proven it's an environment that also delivers results for advertisers. Advertisers right now, Chris, you've seen some sentiment shifts. What's going on with, with the market itself? Oh, a- absolutely. During the COVID period, we have seen some changes. And, you know, while our audiences have never been stronger, I think it's fair to say some advertisers had drifted away from news media in recent years, particularly print. Um, During COVID, supermarkets, banks, insurers, they've all returned to deliver key messages in uh, a trusted environment at a critical time. And we've been able to demonstrate that trust readers having news brands delivers a real benefit to them. Uh, You look at the the Ipsos research that News Media Works conducted, nearly one in two people say their trust in a media's content impacts their trust in ads in that medium. Um, That research showed that printed newspapers, the most trusted environment, followed closely by news websites. And it's where we have a clear edge over Facebook and YouTube. Most people distrust social media. And as a result, the net trust for ads in that environment is negative 26%. So those are the messages that clearly you want to get to market. And we'll come back and have a a drill down into that. But Jared, first, how do we define what premium content is? There is a lot of debate about uh, and, and good arguments put globally about premium content. But how do you define it? How does the Premium Content Alliance define this thing? Well, I think premium content is is really about two things. The first is what it is, and that's professionally created by our journalists and producers and the journalists and producers from, you know, across the Alliance membership. 
And secondly, it's provided in context, you know, through known, loved, trusted brands and environments um, that not only advertisers can trust, but consumers trust. You know, to Chris's point, we've seen increases across the board in digital audiences. And within that, we've seen increases in direct traffic to site because when you think about you know times like the pandemic whereby people want to be able to rely on the information they come direct to the brands that they know and trust and have done you know for a really long time so firstly it's about what it is and the second thing is about what it does and as we said before it delivers credibility um, it delivers trust and if you're a marketer or an advertiser what that means for you is that the consumer engagement is going to be effective. And again, we think that we can prove that we can deliver results out the back of that. What needs to happen, and I guess you've probably just answered it really, uh, Jared. what needs to happen to move the market? Because these arguments are there. There is some intuitive and common sense around it as well as some, some, some good data. But advertisers still seem to need some convincing. What's got to happen? It's three things, really. It's, um, we've got to be better at communicating that differentiation. You know, I think if you look at the Alliance membership, um, we've got more in common than otherwise. You know, again, we talked about um, stories for Australians created by Australians. You know, that's something that really binds us together. And we've got to be better at communicating how and why that makes it makes us different to our competitors. The second, I think, is, again, more proven effectiveness, you know, more trusted measurement of more meaningful metrics um, that are transparent and, and we agree on what they represent. And I think the final thing is we've got to make it easier to trade against them. And we haven't done that in the past. You know, the reality is that when you think about the digital platforms that we've been talking about, they're actually pretty easy to trade against. You know, we would say that easier doesn't necessarily mean better, but the reality is they are easy to buy. Um, they measure effectively you know, the metrics that they want to communicate. And that's something that we've got to try and counter. Chris, I'm sure you, you, you won't disagree with what Jared said, but what's going to move the market? What, what does the market need to hear? What's your perspective on that? I think the market needs to understand the results that we deliver. It, I 100% agree with Jared. We haven't done over um, a period of time, haven't done a great job of proving the effectiveness of our environment and proving uh, why advertising in on news websites and in printed newspapers does deliver real business results. And we have advertisers that have done a great job individually of proving um, that effectiveness, of proving the, the solid return on investment. But as an industry, we've been more focused on metrics that don't particularly matter, like Nielsen. You know, no one's business model is dependent on Nielsen rankings, yet so much oxygen in digital news, in the digital news conversation is around that. We need to change the conversation, change it to effectiveness, that advertising in a news media environment works. And that has nothing to do with where you're ranked on a monthly letterboard. Kim, I imagine that's part of the agenda then, is it? What, what Chris is talking about, what Chris and Jared are talking about in terms of proving effectiveness. You've been there, Kim, with television as well, right? You've seen, you've seen the challenges that that sector's facing. What do you see a way forward here? So the organisation is principally about independent world-class research, not unlike what the television market has done over the last four years through Think TV. But I, I would challenge, I want to go back a second and just challenge your notion that marketers or advertisers um, aren't listening or aren't acting. 
I speak to CMOs on a regular basis and what I hear from them is give me the proof. They actually want to support Australian media owners. What they're looking for is the magic slide that shows return on investment is stronger when you use um, news brands or television or digital sites that are created by uh, professional um, content creators in Australia. So I would challenge the notion that advertisers aren't awake to the fact that they need quality content available to them to place their ads. And I get feedback all the time and requests, you know, even through COVID, which was a very bleak period, we had um, advertisers and agencies literally sending us emails or calling us looking for information. So I think the key unmet need, if you like, is exactly as um, Chris and Gerard have spoken, which is we need to get better at demonstrating the effectiveness of our particular media channels. I mean, and TV's view is TV should be first on the schedule and absolutely the last one off because it not only delivers, you know, reach and frequency and all the hygiene factors you would expect, but it also drives the rest of the schedule. So research is absolutely central. Uh, doing that in an independent way, preferably with world-leading academics to make sure that there is rigour that sits um, behind the research. And I've got to say, I don't necessarily see that in all of the work that comes from the duopoly. So well put together, well-crafted, peer-reviewed, academically strong research. And then we have to take it to market in a convincing way. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity. I think what we've got is untapped potential. And if we execute the research correctly and take it to market in the right way, I do think that there's going to be a change. And I think it will happen quickly. I really do. I think that Think TV, I'm told um, by market, is making a big difference and has done that in a relatively short period of time. So if you think about some of the brands we're representing that have been around for hundreds of years, if we can move the needle in three, four years, that's going to make a massive difference. And obviously a short-term uptick is necessary as well. So, Chris, you talked about uh, effectiveness and challenging Nielsen and pure audience metrics. What do you think effectiveness needs to look like in, to convince the market that there's, there's, there's actually uh, premium content really does work? Well, it really de depends on the individual business, right? And I think there isn't a one-size-fits-all return on investment calculation that we can roll out to everyone. It's about sitting down and talking to marketers and talking to business executives about the business results that they need their media to drive and then accurately measuring that. And that requires a, a, a deeper conversation and it's a conversation that our individual businesses have with marketers and business leaders all the time, but not necessarily a conversation that the industry has been driving. That's where the different think bodies really come into play. How far away is is this these sorts of initiatives? I mean, you're early in the in the, in the content alliance. Is this a six or twelve month plan to do something here? I think we are all motivated to move very quickly, and we are at a point um, across the board where we're seeing um, record numbers of readership, uh, record subscriber growth within news brands in particular. In particular. Uh, we have great momentum on the audience front, and um, we also have advertisers that are resampling news environments for the first time in some time. Um, I think I speak for all of us when I say we're really motivated to move quickly. The other big theme that's come out so far is this ease of trade. Jared's talked about it. Kim's talked about it. Television's had the same challenges trying to uh, match what uh, the duopoly's been doing in video. Ease of trade 
Does this mean that we may see something like the failed experiment in New Zealand with CAPEX where the industry media companies did get together but in the end couldn't work together to put all the inventory in? But do we need something like that? Do we need a common platform? Do we need single dashboards? Is that what we're talking about as a possible scenario here in the Australian market? It has been tried before. I don't think anything is off the table, but CAPEX really fell over because some of the shareholders were only contributing part of their inventory and... uh, the exchange therefore wasn't serving its purpose. So it doesn't mean that that idea is a failure. The execution in New Zealand needed some work over time. And I think in Australia, you're seeing phenomenal cooperation between the various media companies now where it makes sense. No one would have believed five years ago that News Corp would be printing the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney, but that does happen today. Um, and happens every day because it delivers better business results for News and Nine and a better outcome for our readers and also allows us to focus on competing ferociously where it really matters and that's the journalism and the content. So I'd say nothing's off the table. Jared, would you hold hands with Chris then in a, in a joint platform? Is that um, is there the interest and openness to do that? Look, if we went on a Zoom call, I'd do it physically now just to demonstrate the partnership. Um, <laughs> Look, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, there are ways for us to be able to come together um, that don't necessarily have to be about pooling inventory. Um, Not to say that that's off the table, as Chris said, because at this point, I think we all understand, you know, that our uh, cooperation is essential um, in order to be able to continue to grow uh, and get what we believe we deserve. but, you know, we, from a video perspective, you know, you, you pointed out before, you know, across our assets or across the member assets, you know, we reach 16.4 million Australians, you know, almost 90% of the population, 14 plus. You know, we can, we can find ways to be able to provide access uh, to those audiences across our video assets that doesn't require pooling industry. We... You know, we don't have to move directly to an Australian Hulu in order to be able to do that. And I think, you know, we've spoken openly about um, an agency side or or buy side platform that will allow people to be able to access our video inventory um, that still sits on each individual platform, but is accessible through single buys by agencies. So again, nothing's off the table and, and more to the point, you know, we're actively engaging on how it is that we can better come together in order to be able to give people access to those audiences and those inventories. Kim, you've had some experience trying to herd the television cats on this front. Do you think there is similar issues here and similar outcomes or the challenge is different? No, I think the challenge is a similar one. And I think one of the things we need to be really clear on as an industry is what is making trading with us look like and how do we make that easier because there are a myriad of um, other players in the market who are pretty vocal about what should or shouldn't happen. At the end of the day though the buyer wants to be able to buy a, a particular audience if that is a you know the definitions of those are quite simple um, and that you know there's a single gateway that's probably enough uh, in terms of meeting the requirement of ease obviously metrics on the back end for television are, are, are well measured and well recognized through Ozdam so we have that back end measurement piece kind of sitting there but I think also the arrival of Voz will change the game substantially for uh, television and for broadcasters because it will enable um, more precise audience definition and that's going to make again the life easier what we've done in tv is simply standardize you know the top 
50 segments so that when a buyer is in looking for, you know, mums with toddlers, that is sort of a universal and used by the broadcaster. So there's lots of quick fixes that can be put in place uh, to make life easier, faster. Now, obviously, what you were describing before, which is a private exchange with pool inventory, that's a much bigger piece of work. But as the guys have said, nothing currently is off the table. What I would say, though, is we're not going to wait for perfect to get in the way of better. So we will be doing work to make life simpler and easier to trade. You know, short-term, mid-term, long-term is the the goal. Chris, you've had probably a little bit more of an inside run than than many of us in that you were a co-architect in the deal that Fairfax struck with Google prior to Nine's acquisition where Google represented Fairfax's advertising space. How has that gone? Will it continue? And what we're talking about now, do you think that's enough to offset or counter the, the 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 power and the the influence and market share that Google and Facebook are getting. We've had a really good working relationship with Google over the past couple of years, um, but I think it's fair to say our programmatic partnership was struck at a different point in time. It's before the government had moved to address the imbalance in bargaining power that exists between the platforms and media owners, um, and we're expecting the ACCC's code of conduct work to will mean that news media is compensated for the value that they bring today to those platforms and the value that they've delivered to the enterprise value of those platforms over many, many years. And that will likely mean we'll have a different relationship with Google moving forward. So can I read into that that it won't continue as it is? It's it's continuing now and it's working really well. You know, if you look at the results of Nine's Metro Media business, we've seen growth in print retail sales, print advertising, digital advertising and digital subscriptions and the partnership that we've had in place there has been a key contributor to those business results. That said, the world is different today than it was two and a half years ago and I'd expect that our relationship will evolve rather than stay the same in a world where you do have the platforms required to pay for the value that news brands deliver to them. Jared Seven did a, a, an interesting content deal with Facebook um, earlier this year or last year. But how's that going? Because there was a lot of talk. In fact, it was interesting timing, wasn't it? The Facebook announcement came out just before the ACCC's uh, recommendations are about to come down, and uh, some of some of some of the cynical among us went, uh, "That's that's good timing." But and there was a lot of fanfare. But as I understand it, it was kind of maybe ten million dollars thrown out to all publishers to do something. What's your learning so far with that uh, with that? Arrangement. Yeah, I think that's been a successful partnership both for Seven News and for Facebook. You know, the original content uh, that the Seven News team have created for Facebook Watch has, you know, I know been one of their most successful original content um, initiatives globally. And for us, it's driven a whole heap of audience, um, you know, onto the platform. So, yeah, that's absolutely been a successful partnership. Um, for both us and Facebook and one that we would hope would continue. You know, that's obviously a relationship that is a direct commercial relationship for exclusive content, you know, created by a trusted news brand in Seven News. And I think that that probably sits outside of the code that we've been talking about. You know, that's, a, again, a commercial agreement with regard to exclusive content as opposed to you know, something that's a code conversation which is more about 
fair remuneration for the value that we bring to the platform through the newsfeed and otherwise. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's been a, a profitable partnership for us. Um, it's also been good for them um, and we'd hope that that would continue. It's a really important point, though, in that we need to ensure that the focus remains on the value that news content provides to what is Google and Facebook's core product and core business, organic search and the newsfeed, rather than be distracted by um, what are successful commercial partnerships, but only for a small fraction of those businesses, in this case being the watch surface. Yeah, good point. So, look, it does get us to this further to this this point, though, around trying to tackle the dominance of Google and Facebook. And we have some, some new risks on the horizon, don't we, in terms of uh, – the collapse of the cookie economy in 2022, which essentially will drive more market trading to logged in or ID-based targeting, which means then that Google and Facebook have a natural advantage there because they have logged in users. And also we've got privacy regulation coming, which further enforces that. So uh, are they risks that publishers already are looking at competitive advantage to the duopoly? So I might jump in on this one. I think that the the impending cookie apocalypse, depending on the language that you read, is going to be really beneficial for premium content producers because I don't know any marketer that says to the agency, I want you to buy on these cookies, I want you to trade on cookies. What they do is they write a brief about an, a consumer and they understand their consumer very well. And that consumer, you know, can be described in lots of different ways. But if you think about the content that's produced, that is the best proxy for a cookie apocalypse in terms of finding in a contextual environment the right audience. So I think the context that the content delivers advertisers will make a huge uh, impact and offset some of the regulation that's coming. And with regards to regulation, you know, all of the members of uh, the Premium Content Alliance are already in industries where they are heavily regulated. They meet um, and in some cases exceed the requirements of the law. So I don't know that there's going to be, uh, it's going to be problematic as people um, work towards making sure that their data is treated, their personal data is treated um, respectfully and properly. I don't think that is going to be an issue for any of the local Australian media shareholders. But the other thing I would say is that the, the shareholders have really rich and really deep pools of first-party data. Um, you know, one of my shareholders got 11 million um, unique ID users, and that's that's just one. So I'm pretty confident that this those deep, rich pools are going to provide an immense source of opportunity for advertisers looking to partnership with first-party data. So, And what's more important is it's transparent. You can absolutely see it's independently measured. And if you're an advertiser and you want to bring your data pool in and marry it with one of the media owners, that is done in a way that is completely transparent. So you always know where it's going, you know where your money is, and you know what you're getting back for it. So I actually think um, 2022 can't come fast enough for me, given the opportunity that contextual advertising really does offer the market. Jared, the entire supply chain is almost at the moment based on cookies. So how, how big a change is it to your business and to, to publishers generally? And do you, you're not spooked like Kim then by the advantage that may go to Google and Facebook for having logged in IDs? No, not at all. I mean, I think, you know, if we're talking about risk, the greatest risk is that we don't take advantage of the fact that we actually create the value that's required in a value exchange and that drives, you know, first party data. 
And that's something that needs to be remembered. You know, we have the relationship with the consumer and we create the content that they want to access. You know, the, the only challenge for us is the one that we have every day, which is continuing to create the content that people are willing to pass over their data in order to be able to access. You know, we're, we're obsessed with that front line, you know, where our consumer meets our product. Um, and so I think it provides a huge opportunity for us to take ownership again of that relationship with the customer. You know, we, we have to do a better job and we have to um, continue to be obsessed with ensuring that we capitalise on that relationship. And when it is that someone does want to access our content, um, that we ensure that we're getting that value back. Chris, um, contextual for you, there's a huge shift in capabilities across the market to be able to not buy based on cookies and behavioural targeting, that's, and that's going to go for publishers and, and advertisers. But uh, equally so, you're upbeat about this, this contextual opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. And news brands, if you look at news brands, we're, of course, building digital subscription businesses. Uh, half of Nine's masthead revenue is now from subscriptions. Uh, news Corp have 640,000 digital subscribers, and it's growing at 24% year on year. Uh, the Herald and the Age are growing north of 20%, and that's accelerated uh, first through the summer bushfire period and most recently COVID. And that's great for advertisers. Uh, not only for the identities and the deep data that we have, but also because subscribers tend to be incredibly engaged and they have higher levels of trust in the environment. Uh, Jared, what, what are your subscription numbers logged in? Can you talk about those? For Seven West Media specifically, I mean, if you look at Seven Plus, which is our BVOD platform, um, again, we've got more than 3 million registered, verified users and growing. Um, and again, so that creates a huge opportunity for us. You know, we understand what it is that they're doing in the platform. Um, if you think about it from a news perspective, again, um, the West uh, operates a, subs a subscription platform as well, um, and their numbers continue to grow, particularly through the COVID period. So again, I think if you if you think about that across the board, um, the power of the brands, the trust that's inherent in the brands, and the desire for the content that exists therein. You know, regardless of whether it's a subscription platform or you're simply asked to log in in order to access, that puts us in a great position moving forward. There's been lots of talk, Jared, about how audiences have been booming through COVID. How good are those numbers? Across all of our digital assets, the numbers are fantastic. I mean, if you look at the VOD platforms, uh, across the board, we're seeing you know, more than 50% growth across all of the member platforms, which is just phenomenal. Again, you know, that is... Uh, engagement, deep engagement. It's not just access to the platform, it's time spent with. So across the VOD assets, we're seeing incredible numbers. And it's the same across the news sites as well. You know, we've all seen the numbers, you know, as we've talked about, you know, the, the growth across those assets um, because people turn to those brands, all of the news brands that we cover for trusted information, uh, again, year on year has been incredible. And we think a lot of it will stay. You know, as Chris talked to, you know, there has been a coming back to news brands. It's not only in the digital environments, but obviously we see a lot of that in digital environments where we've got immediate uh, measurement that we can communicate clearly and quickly. Uh, but it's absolutely across the board. Kim, in the, uh, in the, in the free-to-wear linear television area, good growth there too, right? Yeah, we've seen um, massive growth, uh, up 30% during the lockdown period and I think currently sitting at 10% uh, 
uh, growth overall in audiences. BVOD viewing is up 23%. And, and why that's important is, I mean, we're media businesses, you know, audiences are our, our bread and butter. So in my experience, growth in audience is generally um, a leading indicator for growth in share. And so we're hopeful that the, while the current levels obviously impacted by COVID-19 may come back, come off a little, that certainly we think we're going to be in a stronger position as we enter the second half. Well, that's the big thing, isn't it? Is it rusted on? Because, I mean, even even if you talk to uh, companies like Trek, the cycle, the, the, the bicycle brand, they've had boom times through COVID. The marketing person I was talking to, their, their challenge is, will people ride through winter and then can they get them back on their bikes through summer? So that's the whole notion of, will it stick? Same for publishing, same scenario. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, you can only go... You can only buy one bike but you absolutely are always looking to consume content across the board and what we think is that that appetite has been reignited through lockdown and through COVID and we think that's going to be sustainable in the second half. It's not just about size of audience but the returning nature of that audience you know again we're not just talking about bigger audiences here we're talking about growth in daily active users so we've created strengthened recreated a habit that was always there and through a fracturing has uh, you know somewhat dissipated some would say we would argue not but at the very least it's come back so these aren't just scale audiences they're returning audiences they're daily audiences they're active and again they're not only coming back but they're spending longer with us you know across all of the digital assets so you know, we talked before about the fact that, you know, it's not just about scale and a Nielsen leaderboard. It's about the other metrics that matter. And, and that's got to be a big one. Chris, um, do we have any numbers on how direct traffic or referral traffic from socials to the publishers has changed through COVID? The thing that we have found pretty consistently over the last few years is whenever there's a news event that creates an uplift in audience, that audience is a new baseline. And it's a new baseline not only for their their user habit, but also for subscriber numbers. Um, A good example is during the Banking Royal Commission, the financial reviews audience across both print and digital had significant increases. And then from there, that was was the new normal. And then there's an uplift and it's consistent across all news publishers, that behaviour. Kim, it, it, it does look like the Premium Content Alliance is starting to take shape in terms of its strategy uh, and you can start to see, okay, this is where you're going to be heading, which is um, reassuring. What then in the next six to 12 months, what should we expect to see from the Premium Content Alliance in terms of initiatives and what from those, those three separate groups as well? How does it all come together? Give us a quick lowdown on that. So the Premium Content Alliance is literally the business that houses the resource. So you, so what you'll that sort of you know pays the rent and looks after the photocopier and that kind of stuff. So you'll see the Premium Content Alliance making available the resources required by TV, by digital, and by news brands to go to market. Now, in terms of go to market, that is going to be strongly focused on research. It's going to be strongly focused on providing advertisers with the evidence and the proof they need to take to their boardroom to secure additional funding because we know that in difficult times maintaining your share of voice will deliver, you know, greater share on the other side. You'll either recover quicker or you will come out stronger and in some cases both. So we're effectively an independent measurement business. That that will not change. Uh, We will go to market in a comprehensive way once we have that research. So that's, that's one part of it. And the other thing that I think is really important is staying abreast of 
changes in the market as the advertisers themselves are dealing with, you know, disruption that the likes of which none of us have seen in our lifetime and COVID's a great example of that. So supporting advertisers and we get a lot of calls from both agencies and advertisers who are looking for information. We're really, it's a simple service. We do research, we then take that to market. Each of the businesses, you know, has got a very particular set of opportunities and so those things will be addressed specifically within industry verticals. But I think it's going to be a really exciting 12 months as we ramp up. I was saying to someone the other day, we've built the organisation and the team have never physically met all in one place. So we're super excited when, you know, when restrictions are lifted and we can all be in the office and have our first cup of tea together. No idea when that will be. But uh, but despite COVID um, and despite some of the challenges the industry has experienced, you know, we're, we're soldiering on and we aim to sort of in the, the first quarter of the next fiscal if possible, and definitely by second, bring to market the evidence and the proof that the advertisers need because you know they're going to they're going to need help to kind of keep their brands on track with what's happened and what you know the impending kind of recession that people are talking about presently. We're going to wrap this up with some final thoughts from from all of you, and and, and that is this: uh, what does the best case scenario look like for each of you in twelve months' time and two years' time? Uh, Chris, first to you, best case. The reality is news brands, they they set the national agenda, they lead the national conversation. We need to do a better job of proving to advertisers why that environment is great for their brands and trust is one piece of the puzzle. Um, But the biggest investors have also done great work on effectiveness and, and return on investment and we need to roll that out more broadly. And But it is an exciting year ahead, right? Um, that coupled with subscriber growth, a solid code of conduct outcome will secure investment in Australian journalism for many years to come. And that can only be good for the broader community and, you know, who are turning to news brands more than ever before. Jared, 12 months, best case, your dreams. Tell us about your dreams. My dreams are the last thing that you want to hear about, but I'll, I'll keep it to work, huh? <laughs> uh, look, you know, for me, and uh, Kim and I have talked about this with the board of Think Premium Digital, you know, we try and keep it pretty simple. You know, if if advertisers and marketers understand not only the difference between what we do, but the benefits, then I think that's going to be a really good result. You know, um, understanding the benefits, going back to what we talked about earlier, is really about being able to prove effectiveness. Um, you know, as a result of that, and as Chris said, the ACCC inquiries um, you know, I think we'll have a, a better, more level playing field and we'll be able to continue to create the premium content that Australians want. Chris, you've been on the IAB board. What becomes of the IAB and the Premium Content Alliance? Is this, a, is this an arms race? Is there a role for each? How, do, how does it look to you? I don't see it as a competitive situation, but um, certainly think that the IAB Uh, will become more focused around the technical components and also drawing upon their international connections than perhaps has been the case in the past where most of the conversation is around um, managing Nielsen as a vendor. Kim Portrait, your dreams in 12 months, two years about where the Premium Content Alliance might might be, what's the ideal, what's the what's utopia look like? Reality, though. Are you suggesting that I'm unrealistic, Mr McIntyre? So for me, the next 12 months would look like all of my shareholders getting their fair share of the advertising market in terms of revenue, but also attention. I think that would be accomplished by delivering research that re-prosecutes exactly how important 
and how effective the members' content is compared to the duopoly. And I think that if we do that well enough and we go to market well enough, we will get more than our fair share, more than our current fair share of the ad market. Now, the state of the ad market, who knows with all the things that are going on, but certainly a focus on our fair share and that is about provisioning advertisers with the reasons to come to us. And we know as we live in this attention economy, context and professionally produced content makes all the difference in the world. And we need people to be remembering that attention equals impact equals business income. So we will be we'll be re-prosecuting and proving that we are the best mediums available for that. Well, I look forward to that because uh, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm a journalist and uh, I think uh, that whole profession needs is, needs needs a kick. Um, so thank you for joining us uh, today, uh, all of you. We will no doubt circle around in probably six months' time to um, to track how, how that market is behaving. So thanks for joining all. Thanks, thanks Paul. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.